Konnichiwa. This is the Filmlinks Podcast World Tour, a special summer series where we explore filmmaking from around the world. Watashiwa Jonathan. Watashiwa Alex. Korewa Shu Niju Nana Des. Japan juxtaposed. Yep, that's right. We are back in Japan yet again. This time we are not talking about、uh, Kurosawa. We are not talking about cowboys. We are just talking about Japanese movies. Right. And to be clear, we may talk about Akira Kurosawa, but we have not watched any of his films for this week.、Uh, we're just watching other influential directors from Japan,、um, uh, some that relate more or less to Kurosawa, but others that are quite distinct. That's right.、Uh, we're going to be looking at some legendary、uh, Japanese filmmakers today who aren't Kurosawa and some very interesting family drama. We didn't. Intend to put together a family drama theme week、uh, when we were、right. looking at this Japanese episode, but holy crap, did we ever create a Japanese、uh, family drama themed week? And it is a very sad family drama themed week, so、yeah. get a box of tissues when you watch these films.、Um, but they are good and they are worth worth a watch. Right, so <laughs> like we said, we. we Are trying to, for the world tour, pick a bunch of movies that we have not seen. So we unintentionally created the saddest week so far on the podcast, probably,、uh, even with the neo realists <laughs> in the mix. Right, right. And it's especially a come down after uh, uh, all of the, the bright shininess of the Indian episode last week、um, and all of like, yeah, the joy is... and the passion bursting at the seams <laughs> to come to like, this, this more subdued look at things. Well, Uh, subdued in two of our movies, not subdued in Harakiri at all. But,、right. um, but definitely in smaller films with a more serious and sometimes just straight up depressing、uh, look at the world. Right. So, specifically, what movies are we looking at today, Alex?、Uh, well, first, we're going to be talking about Harakiri、uh, by Kobayashi, Masaki Kobayashi.、Um, It might be flip flopped. I still haven't gotten that down yet. But、uh, he is definitely a legendary Japanese filmmaker in the ranks with Kurosawa. We're also going to be talking about Tokyo Story by Yasujiro Ozu, which is another legendary filmmaker. And then we're going to be talking about Nobody Knows,、uh, the, maybe the most depressing movie of the bunch.、Uh, right. Well, for reasons that we'll get to.、Uh, but it was done by Hirokazu Korida, who is a contemporary Japanese filmmaker、um, and legendary in his own right.、Um, probably more legendary once he's dead, because that's how legends work.、Um, <laughs> but I don't mean to be so morbid, but the films this week just put me in that mood. Yeah, so the title Japan Juxtaposed kind of comes from this idea that we're juxtaposing Harakiri, which is a. Feudal Japanese、uh, samurai film like the Kurosawa films we've watched before, so there'll be a lot of comparison there. And then Tokyo Story and Nobody Knows, which are very similar in their conflicts of、um, very heavy、uh, family conflicts from two different time periods、uh, in Japan, both modern time periods.、Uh, so typically we'll go, we'll talk about our films in Their order of release, but this week we're going to start with Harakiri to kind of give us that transition out of Kurosawa and into some more modern set、uh, Japanese films. So, with that being said, Alex, do you want to 
tell us what Harakiri is about. I do, Jonathan. And uh, yet again, I find myself wishing I knew a little bit more about Japanese history before talking about a film from Japan, because this one it keys into a very specific time period in uh, Japanese history. It seems uh, when a lot of feudal lords and the samurais who were supported by those feudal lords suddenly up and vanished. So all of those and by vanish, I mean, they didn't have that the lords weren't allowed to be lords anymore. So the samurais didn't mysteriously disappear. But suddenly you have a bunch of samurai on the street who are masterless, so now you call them ronin, and they don't have any money. And this is the story of what happens to a couple of those samurai who go to one of the clans who are still in power and ask to commit ritual suicide, um, harakiri, which loosely translated means slicing the belly or something like that. Uh, something along those lines, because that's what hard carry technically is. It's <laughs> graphic, but descriptive. Open. Yeah, right. Um, it is uh, also called seppuku. That's the formal uh, name for it. But it, it is ripping open the belly and then having your second uh, chop your head off with the sword. So fun. Um, but it was yeah, looked sorry upon to be so graphic, as, but that's very is a very like specific and like important facet of this entire movie it is it is it is um it is viewed as a more honorable way to die than starving to death or almost any other way besides dying in battle for a samurai for someone of a samurai class um keep in mind that the samurai were a social class as much as um a warrior so it, it, this kind of all tied together and like many other uh jidageki uh, films, which are these period piece films, um, particularly about feudal Japan, uh, it, it takes aim at that feudal order. So uh, it's it's almost this thriller as a samurai, a ronin now, shows up at this clan and is like, hey, I want to commit harakiri here. Um, and the clan is like, okay, um, but a lot of you ronin have been showing, showing up at these uh, clans like us, claiming you want to uh, commit Harry Curie because your story is so sad um, in her hopes that we'll give you money and send you on your way so you don't kill yourself in our homes. Uh, and kind of forcing the samurai to try to prove that he wants to kill himself and the samurai trying to prove that, except does he really want to do that? Um, motivations and backstories are revealed over the course of the film and I really don't want to give anything away because it's a really good uh, reveal to watch but um, yeah there's a lot of moving elements uh, it's kind of hard to not spoil it because it's so complicated it's really I think you described it as like a classic noir film and it really is because it has those twists and turns and the way that the story is revealed is so brilliant we have again we have um, this idea of a story within a story where the the first Ronin that we see shows up and is like hey I want to commit Harakiri and so the leader of the clan's like, oh, really? Let me tell you the story about this other guy who uh, came to us and wanted to commit Harakiri and see if you still feel that way. And then later on, the Ronin is like, okay, well, let me tell you this story about my family and all this stuff. So a lot of the story takes place through flashbacks. And then what we learn in the flashbacks impacts the things that are being revealed in real time. And it's really well-crafted narrative. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's incredibly intricate. Um, 
And if, if nothing else, I feel like uh, it's one of those films that is told out of sync uh, because you have this flashback timeline that keeps progressing throughout the film um, to the point basically where you have what you said, a story within a story going on. Um, and you could uncut those and have it all happen in order, um, which is something that would happen right. 20 years before this fil- film came out. That's how that story would have been told. But um, I think you get much more significance and certainly a lot more tension and a lot more uh, suspense out of revealing it in the order that they reveal it. Right. And this film comes out uh, a, quite a bit after after Rashomon, which I believe was 52 or 53 in this the film early came 50s. out. Yeah, so it was about a decade after that. Yeah, so I kind of wonder how much uh, Rashomon helped pave the way for this kind of story that does tell the story in that back and forth, even though Rashomon had a little bit less of the story in the present being affected by, or our perception of the story being told in the present being affected by what we're learning in the flashbacks. It was mostly just us learning about the flashbacks in Rashomon. Yeah, yeah. And Kobayashi and Ozu and um, Kurosawa, along with, I'm sure, a few others that I just don't know off the top of my head, uh, kind of come together to make a... Unfor- it's not a formal movement like the uh, the French New Wave where you have a bunch of young guns together and, like, we're going to shake things up. But they, they these, these directors, these Japanese directors, ended up launching a kind of Japanese golden age of cinema in the 50s and the 60s. Because um, Tokyo Story 2 comes out in 1953. And you're talking about this this kind of new way of storytelling that was a big splash with Rashomon. But again, you see um, that order change up here in Harakiri, where you tell a story basically out of order, and you flip-flop between two parallel storylines. Um, and then you see that influence future cinema. Like, think about anything that... Um, Christopher Nolan does or Quentin Tarantino does um, where it's it's out of sync and it's non-linear right and still within that we're seeing very this is a theme that will carry over to all of our films this week is this very kind of technically meticulous and technically beautiful filmmaking like we've seen with Akira Kurosawa and I think um, at least from the sample that we've pulled from so far of Japanese films, seems to be uh, quite a theme in Japanese film and seems to be kind of a trademark of their art in general, is it's very restrained. It's very, even though this film is bigger than the other two and has some action set pieces, it's still done in a very minimalistic and stylized way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, no one can shoot a outdoor scene better than um, uh, these Japanese filmmakers of the 50s and 60s. Uh, we've seen plenty stocked, um, plenty stocked to the brim, beautiful uh, outdoor scenes in uh, Kurosawa films, and you get quite a few here in Harakiri. There's a really great sword battle at one point. I won't tell you what point. Yeah, the, That's outside. The, the climax of the movie. Absolutely gorgeous. Um and it's just this, like you said, it it's clearly is technical um, perfection. It's not always just cloudy exactly right in Japan. Although maybe it is. I don't know. I doubt it, though. That's not how <laughs> filmmaking goes. Filmmaking is, is the art of dealing with many problems at once that keep popping up. So I don't think that was the case. I think this was a case of skill and, uh, like you said, technical perfection and an um, emphasis on that within your filmmaking. 
But alongside that, we have another discussion, kind of like what we had with uh, Yojimbo and A Fistful of Dollars, is the fact that in the midst of this beautiful filmmaking and intricate narrative, it is a pretty brutal movie. I mean, this movie is about, like you said, slicing your belly open. It's And they don't shy away from it. Uh, I mean, even though they're, it's done tastefully and yet still, like, gives you this really raw and visceral experience. About as tastefully as it could have been done. Right, um, as far as, like, yeah, the, the script calls for. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no like, blood splatter on this lens or anything. You don't it's not hear, Tarantino. Like, yeah, no, there's not, like, over-the-top squelching noises or something like that. Isn't that just a terrible word, squelch? Anyway. Squelching, yeah. Um, oh, I hate it. Anyway. <laughs> um but it but it is it is really beautiful and at the same time incredibly vicious um and incredibly intense um both the battles and the filmmaking around those battles completely precise and uh beautiful but deadly um not to get too weirdly poetic cuz I'm bad at that and when I'm free speaking but um kind of like the way you would wield a katana yeah and and another interesting thing about this film, especially as compared to the Kurosawa samurai films that we've seen, is this film is it, it takes more dramatic liberties. Uh, there are certain times when he uses his cinematic uh, style in a way that's not necessarily realistic, in a way that Kurosawa is a little bit more grounded in reality. So just as the first example, the opening of the film is we see this suit of armor that kind of represents the ancestors that the clan um, kind of prays to or uh, pays homage to throughout the film. But it's very dark and like spotlighted with smoke all around it. And it's this very ominous feeling. And that's how we open. And then we go in other points of the film in order to emphasize the drama that's happening. We'll throw a spotlight and kind of drown the rest of the frame in darkness to just literally highlight uh, what's going on. And it's, it was something that's interesting because, like I said, Kurosawa doesn't do that as much. He doesn't call the filmmaking out, but um, Kobayashi doesn't doesn't feel any hesitation with that and it, it actually does accent his story very nicely yeah yeah it works perfectly for harakiri um it's exactly what the film needs for this weird drama pseudo mystery uh film almost where you where you don't yeah, a little find bit out mystery. to the end um yeah think think mystery in the same way that like memento is a mystery um not, not, yeah, not, not that the characters are trying to figure out what happened, but that we are slowly piecing together a story that has happened before the story that we're watching. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a cop drama or anything. It's just like you. one of the things that's most engaging about the film is that you're trying to put together exactly what happened. Um, and as you might be one step or one uh, ahead or behind of certain characters, you're engaged with trying to egg them on to uh to the same conclusions you've reached or you are trying to catch up to to whatever they've just realized um it makes for a very interesting film to watch yeah and again another contrast in this film this film has so many layers there's so much going on is that there is 
another side that's very sweet and very um, down to earth. It's it's the story of the family of the Ronin who um, we see at the very beginning and we kind of follow as his daughter falls in love and gets married and their family and their child. And then as they hit hard times and have to cope with that, and that is kind of sets the backdrop for the story that we're watching. But all of those moments were very sweet and very lighthearted. And then aside from that, we're seeing the first thing that we're seeing is the the brutal and depressing outcome. So we're we're watching all of these sweet moments with this tinge, this grain of salt of, OK, I know where this is going, so I can't be too ooing and awing over it. Yeah, it can't be too, too, uh, too comfortable, too uh, content with where you're at. Because you know the bad times are coming, um, but we should talk about this this idea of family drama and um, uh, Japanese culture in this film, um, because if you think about it, a clan is essentially a family, and a lot of this this film not only centers around that the in particular nuclear family of the Ronin, but also the larger uh, clan politics that's at play and the uh uh i don't know what the best way to describe it is but like you said with the the suit of armor at the beginning they revere and honor um and i don't know the particulars of of ancestor worship or if that's what's happening there um i'd have to do a lot more research to find that out (laughs) but there's definitely at least honoring yeah there, there definitely is like a generational honoring that happens um within this film and the sense of um, heavy responsibility and respect for your family that you see uh, within this film and um, I feel like you see in the other two films today um, and I, I don't think that is in particular a Japanese thing by any stretch of the imagination um, like unique to Japan but it is interesting to see it because um, we we accidentally struck upon this family theme to see it stru- uh, strung out across three Japanese films. And it's an interesting piece of cultural tourism um, to experience uh, that much uh, exploration of what family means in Japan. Right. And I think that there is something to be said about, you know, Japan's reverence for genealogy and stuff like that because you know clearly there's there's a little bit more of that that awareness there within those kind of cultural things than maybe in american film or just american life uh you know we maybe look up where we came from on ancestors.com sometimes but (laughs) other than that it's not like we have these shrines and monuments to remind us of the people who came before us as much as seems to permeate the Japanese culture. And that's, like you said, that's something that we found in all three of these films. So it's something we want to bring up. And we've even seen it in um, some of the other Kurosawa films, like in uh, Yojimbo, where you have the three brothers and the, the two clans fighting over each other, over you know loyalty to themselves. And uh, also in Seven Samurai, where you have the band of farmers who are all, you know, kind of quarreling within themselves, but trying to stick together. They just don't have the means to protect themselves. So they have to go out. And, and maybe that's why this idea of Ronins and Samurais who are disconnected from a family is so interesting to, or is such a big part of Japanese art and stuff, because 
that's kind of an outlier that's that's an interesting thing to observe yeah yeah it always does seem to be a ronin that these films uh focus on it's never a um just your your standard uh employed retainer um but you know all film does tend to deal in fantasy or the fantastical um so a ronin i guess is also inherently more interesting than um yeah if you could focus on one hero employed samurai i guess right so on to uh the next japanese film of this week tokyo story from 1953 jonathan do you want to tell us what that one is all about yeah it's pretty simple (laughs) it's a pretty straightforward story um and the interest of it comes from the way that it's presented but basically it's about this older japanese couple who lives in this small town in the country and they live with their youngest daughter but they travel to tokyo um Obviously, the big city uh, is very hustle bustle, very different than the life that they're used to. And they go visit each of their other children. Um, And so we kind of follow them through this journey. And each one ends up realizing that they don't have time for their parents, essentially, and uh, finding a way to shuffle them off onto the next kid or, or kind of get them out of the way until the parents go back home and it's it's a very sad story but it's very poignant it's very poetic i guess yeah yeah it really really is and um i'm glad you stopped because we don't want to spoil anything yeah i'm trying not to spoil the end (laughs) but this is i I do want to take a second um before we get too far into tokyo story and talk about something because i've been throwing around these terms and i think you have too for the past couple weeks but we haven't really explained it um, and when we talk about big filmmaking and small filmmaking um, and kind of the spectrum between the two of them. And when we say uh, this is a really good time to this is a really good time, essentially, uh, to stop and give a good example, because Tokyo Story is a really great um, uh, example of small filmmaking. It is focused in on a small group of people, a little more mon- mundane almost um yeah. versus big filmmaking which just go back an episode and listen to the section on bahubali and you know what big filmmaking is that's a big movie <laughs> yeah and there's no there's no precise line between the two but there is a scale um and there is it is interesting to see how things tend to be treated on one end of the spectrum versus the other um I, but i just wanted to take a moment and throw that out there so just when people um hear that hear me talking weird random terminology that I kind of applied to things myself. Um, I, I want that it to be understood what I mean. I'm not trying, I'm by no means trying to say that this is a big deal mo- movie versus this is a small deal movie. Um, is it, that's what I'm scared right. of people thinking. I don't want anybody to think that I'm disparaging any movies by calling them small. Um, they're yeah. really, yeah. Yeah. But the other thing to clarify is that that also doesn't necessarily have any bearing on like you know what the budget is or how many people were involved um smaller films tend to have a smaller budget and a smaller uh like need for people and stuff but typically the term refers to the subject matter so it's about a family it's a very intimate um subject matter it's about a couple people and their you know emotional connection to each other as opposed to this is about an entire country or this is about a 
nationality or very much broader kind of themes and goings on. Like in Bahubali, it was an adventure. So he's going through, traveling through all these different um, places and meeting these different people and that kind of thing. So naturally, it, it tends to have more uh, people involved and more money needed to create that, but it's not a necessity. So it's more about the themes and the subject matter than necessarily the production or yeah. even the length of the film. Like Tokyo Story is two and a half hours. It's about as long as any um, really long action film also. True. And uh, I'd also say that something I've noticed over the past couple of weeks, because we've been bouncing back and forth between big and small movies a lot, um, is that big movies tend to be more about escapism and smaller movies tend to be more about relatability. Not that they are mutually exclusive or that a small film isn't escapist um, and a big film can't be relatable. But when I watch Bahubali or Lord of the Rings, I'm not like, wow, this reminds me of that time I carried a ring to a volcano. <laughs> I'm like, right. wow, this is really fun. And I forgot about the real world for like three hours and really enjoyed the film. Um, but when you watch Tokyo Story, you're like, when I watch Tokyo man, Tokyo I should Story, call my mom. I'm like, man, I should really talk to my mom today, which I will actually, like right after this, but um, not the point. <laughs> um, uh, hi, mom. But that, that, that is, hi, shout out to my mom. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, Mama Filmlings, for uh, raising us to really like movies. Good movies, yeah. Yeah, good movies. <laughs> Anyway, shout out over discussion about big and small movies over now back to Tokyo Story, a really great small movie that was long and about moms and how you should spend time with yours. But it was about a lot of other kinds of family dynamics also, um, not just child and parent, even though that was kind of the crux of the film. But through that, we get a lot of other things. We get, you know, sibling relationships, we get grandparent grandchild relationships we get um in-law relationships um the in-law relationship ends up being more important than the actual blood sibling uh, or blood children relationship and that's kind of a big part of the film because yeah, the blood um, children are <laughs> they're well they're not they're not terrible terrible but they are kind of absorbed in their own lives right but it's it's this thing where you kind of understand where they're coming from and you're like man, do I do that? Is that like, <laughs> how, how can I kind of avoid that? And that's one of the powerful things about this film is that it makes you take a look inside yourself and be like, man, how, <laughs> where does that reflect me? And where, how do I not be like these people um, necessarily? Because they weren't being mean to their parents or anything. They no. just were really busy people. They just didn't make an extra effort to be with their parents as they should have done. Yeah, yeah, they didn't put it into a larger context of um, the the value. They didn't. Maybe the best way to put it is they didn't put as much value on visiting their parents as their parents put on visiting them, and that ended up being hurtful for uh, their parents. And end of the at, by the end of the film, quite tragic. So. Right. Um, like we said before, this is a really a film that makes you want to call your mom. So unlike nobody knows, which is maybe <laughs> the opposite, but <laughs> right. um, but we'll get there. But we'll get but there. The other thing about Tokyo Story is that 
And another thing sometimes that applies to smaller films more than bigger films is that it's not an exciting movie. It's a movie that's a portrait of life and it's very slow paced. It kind of it kind of drifts by kind of a thing. You almost get the sense that it's coming from the perspective of the grandparents and it's this very slow and um, almost like another another theme in the film is uh, this idea of the train that takes them from the country to the city. And so almost in the way that the country passes by in the windows of a train while you're sitting on it, the film kind of carries you from one scene to the next. And it, it just shows you each scene. And as the scenes go by, a fuller picture of the landscape comes together. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a bunch of exciting events um, that happen. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't really say anything that happens in the film is um, exciting until, like, the very end, which is maybe not a great pitch for the film. But yeah, it, exciting still isn't the word I would use at the end. <laughs> that's true. Maybe depressing. But um, it is emotionally engaging, and it's so yeah. relatable. And that's maybe the strength of small films in general is that they tend to be so darn relatable. Uh, even if you don't relate to a... a particular large experience of somebody's life um once you boil somebody's life down to small enough bits some of those bits are gonna match like parents like most people have parents actually everybody has parents even if you've never (laughs) met them everyone has them they exist um i don't think there's clone babies yet i don't think we've gone there i don't know discussion (laughs) for a different podcast (laughs) we've talked about that before the idea that you know, the more um, universal and uh, personal your theme is, the more it's going to stick with people. And this film has stuck with so many people. Yeah, yeah, it, it is um, one of those legendary films. It's in the Criterion, so all of your hipster friends like us can enjoy it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is it, it is one of those things that just slowly becomes emotionally engrossing over the course of the film as you watch it. And then by, uh, I mean, easily by the 30-minute, 40-minute mark of the film, and it's a two-and-a-half-hour film, you're wrapped up in the, these characters' lives. Um, and there's no, like, you know, there's no upfront explanation about anybody's situation within the film. Nobody, like, leans over to the other character and is like, do you remember when this happened to that character? Um, yeah. As, like, a nod-nod, wink-wink to the audience of, like, here's all the backstory you'll need. Um, but you're really just trying, you're, you're stuck trying to suss out what the relationships are between these characters and how do they know each other and, uh, which one of these adults are their kids again? Um, yeah, which is what I was, was going to mention that the course because, of the film. yeah, like you said, no one, they're not like, oh, hi brother. Oh, hello mother. Hello mother-in-law to give us like an easy way to piece together this family tree. And yeah, that's almost no... one of the things that keeps you in the film is trying to like piece all the people together. It's almost like you're going to someone else's family reunion and just observing and trying to figure out how people how everyone um, are related, related to each other and what the, the relationship between those people are. Yeah, there's no there's no like Wes Anderson style introductions for each character titles um, for each person. Yeah, and I might have just said that so I can get Wes Anderson into yet another podcast. But uh, I think there is some valid comparison with. Um, Wes Sanderson and Tokyo Story. We actually have there is a, actually we found a lot <laughs> of stuff on that this week. Yeah, we have a, a video essay that we will 
include in the uh, blog post that kind of talks about this comparison because as we talked about in the Wes Anderson episode, a lot of his themes have to do with parent-child relationships and um, this idea of often his films will bring these families together through adversity, whereas Ozu kind of shows the drifting apart of families due to various circumstances, this one being, you know, just distance and busyness of life. Yeah, and time and just just the growing apart that happens over the course of um, life as you move from um, this phase of your life to that phase of your life to that phase of your life. And, you know, part of it while you're watching it is um, this weird internal struggle of um, you're like, that isn't going to happen to me, Um, but it might. You know, right. there's a reason that it's so relatable um, because it happens to almost everybody. Uh, you move to a different life phase and you drift apart from your family a little, maybe. Um, and granted, you know, this is in the 1950s, so it's not like you can play words with friends with your mom, um, <laughs> right. you know, in across time zones. Like if you still play would, words with friends. <laughs> right. I actually just recently started again um, because... Mm-hmm because I could. And my mom was like, do you want to play words with friends? So we started playing words with friends. Um, to start a game. Yeah. I, I like how my mom has become a subtopic of this episode. <laughs> um, interesting. Anyway, you know, back in 1953, Japan, they probably lived like within 50 to a hundred miles of Tokyo and going to see each other was just unfeasible, um, on a regular basis. Because you had to travel by train, and train was probably really expensive back then. Um, it takes a long time. It takes a really long time. The parents are old, and hard, it's hard to get around. Um, long dis- long ter- distance travel is like a wear on the body. Uh, and, and just the reasons just keep adding up and keep adding up and keep adding up. And then by the end, you're, you're stuck not seeing each other as often as you'd like to. And you keep making excuses for it. And you find yourself stuck in this trap and growing apart. And another element of the filmmaking in Tokyo Story that will help transition us into our next movie is how grounded in reality this movie feels, as opposed to Harakiri, where Kobayashi used a lot of stylistic elements and, um, you know, showed that it was a movie and used the movie techniques to uh, emphasize his points. Tokyo Story basically just sets up each shot as like a painting or like a photograph and then just kind of lets the action happen within that and then we cut to another one. And it's almost all locked down shots, I think. Uh, And it's very still and um, it's just the acting is very natural and it it literally (laughs) feels like you're just watching somebody's life happen. And it doesn't feel... Like a documentary in the way that we're accustomed to nowadays because our, our cameras are much more unencumbered, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, nowadays. But it still it feels like we're almost almost like a cross section of a dollhouse and just watching these people's lives through this little window uh, that is Ozu's camera. Yeah, yeah, it has that fly on the wall almost feel about it. Um, and I do want to mention, uh, both in Tokyo Story and Harakiri, um, 
uh, that, and this is something that I noticed in Kurosawa and I talk about mm-hmm. a lot in Kurosawa, but the, the framing and where you put what, the, just the composition of the shot is phenomenal in, in all three of those films, but especially in Tokyo Story. They use um, the idea of a doorway and um, what, at least, what at least I see as the unique layout of a Japanese house versus the kinds of uh, house that you, the kind of a house that you would find in uh, the US or like Western Europe or something like that. Um, they use that kind of a house uh, that Japanese house to really, uh, really, really uh, emphasize their framing, uh, foreground, make ground, background. Yeah, so it's often very angular, so it fits in the square frame of a of a camera lens very well. Perfectly, and you end up with this uh, looking through this doorway feel all the time, um, and it's almost it's almost that Wes Anderson dollhouse feel, um, but it's not like a cut open set either. It feels like they're within a house. And they're they're just shooting through doorways um, for perfect effect, which makes it again feel like you're really there, like you're just looking through the doorway uh, to see what's happening in the other room. Right, but not quite as much as the next film, um, which also has very good framing, but in a little bit different way. Um, a very different. Do you want way. to <laughs> set us up for nobody knows, Alex? That depends. Do you want to cry? Um, uh, no, but I couldn't help it this week. That's okay. It's okay. Sad. So nobody knows is a story about um, the world's worst mother, um, except not about her. It's about her kids. Um, she's she has about four kids, uh, two sons, two daughters, uh, and she is kind of flighty. She's had all these children by different uh, dads, and none of them are still in the picture. Uh, and she's been moving them from house to house. When they move into a new apartment at the start of this film, she literally sneaks two of her children into the apartment um, by suitcases because yeah. she can't. She isn't allowed to have that many people live in the apartment. Um, and she leaves for long periods of time, too. She'll leave for like <laughs> a couple weeks at a time, for a month at a time, until about 30 minutes into the movie. And this is still pretty early in the film, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling it. This is the main conflict of the film. Um, she leaves like forever. Like she just doesn't come back. Um, and the kids are left to their own devices. And the protagonists of the film, well, all of the film, all of the children are technically protagonists, but the main protagonist is uh the oldest uh son akira we have another akira on the podcast another akira. but in, in less less shiny uh of a of a s- setting because it's about child abandonment and maybe yeah. the worst thing about the whole deal is it's based on a true story that actually happened and in the true story it was actually worse than what happened in nobody knows so yeah we'll uh, include a link to an article that explains that uh, there's there just re- read the wikipedia page uh okay. it's it's the Su- sugamora sugamora sugamuro something like that child abandonment case um it is not uh pleasant at all um yeah and neither really is the situation within this film but again turning it back to this idea of family um because both of the previous films had this idea of what do you do um, in in your your respect in your um, 
requirement, your, uh, your responsibility to other generations within your family. And this is a generation left to its own, cut loose from a family entirely. So it's just these four kids on the same gen, uh, generation. And how do they survive? And how does this oldest child, um, who's only like 12, by the way, take on that responsibility and try to keep his uh, brother and sisters alive? Yeah. And like we were saying with Tokyo's story, feeling very grounded in reality, nobody knows is almost presented like straight documentary style. Uh, like if you didn't know that it was a fiction, you might assume that it was a, a documentary. Um, and that's not to say that the film is... Un- I mean, the film looks like it was shot on mini DV tape, but... Right. And that's not to say that like any of the framing or anything is unintentional because there are some very intentional compositions and some very uh striking shots and poignant moments uh but it it's it's very fly on the wall like especially with the way that they do close-ups and like little singling out of things and just kind of jumping around and it just it doesn't narrate the story to you or anything it just kind of presents this situation that these kids find themselves in um and I will say that all the kids gave great performances. They all did really well, which I assume can be very difficult. Uh, the first rule of filmmaking is don't work with kids or animals <laughs> um, because they're just so hard to control. But Corita is able to, um, you know, use these four kids to a great effect and they all work really well off of each other Um and they all feel incredibly natural. They don't feel like they're playing to the camera or anything. It was really amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that Karina has kind of made a career out of. Um, and all three of our filmmakers today probably um, will end up deserving their own episodes later on in the future. Uh, but uh, in the case of Nobody Knows, it's just so... I, w- I mean, I would actually call it gritty. Um especially yeah. as as the film progresses and it gets dirtier and dirtier. And like you were talking about, literally. singling out specific shots. Yeah, literally. Um, they update us on as to the, uh, the uh, I guess, situation, the status, um, the, the, the care of each character by showing these, these repeated close-ups of characters' shoes and characters' um, uh, fingers and hands and uh, showing them as they get dirtier and more tattered um, over the course of the film. Yeah, one thing that was interesting to me to see between Tokyo Story and Nobody Knows is the way that the Japanese culture has shifted in those 50 years, almost exactly 50 years apart, um, because Tokyo Story is still um, the culture is holding up kind of like in America in the fifties where you kind of think of people still wearing suits and acting in very uh, proper and traditional way. That's what you get in Tokyo story. You have everyone comes in, they take their shoes off, they sit down and very polite offer tea and that kind of thing. Um, and then in nobody knows it's quite different. It's more casual, but the, the things that are left over um, are interesting. Like they still take their shoes off and there's a little point at the entryway of the apartment where you leave your shoes and that kind of thing. Um, so seeing that, uh, contrast that juxtaposition, if you will, again, going back to the title and theme of this episode, uh, was really interesting to watch from, uh, the perspective of an outside culture. 
Yeah, yeah. Although the shoes thing is just like an East Asian thing in general. Like that's a right, but specifically watching it in these films because it's oh yeah, it's still true. not something that's pervasive in our culture. Although it should be. Why do we wear <laughs> shoes inside? What are we monsters? Come on, gotta be um, ready to be to retreat. Gosh, sorry. I'm gonna get down <laughs> off my soapbox and go back to the film now. Yeah. So it is. It is um, definitely a unique slice of life and one that is very different than Tokyo's story. And I think something to keep in mind um, on both is that you're working with um, a very limited source on on each. You're, you're not getting the full spectrum of what culture could be like in, in 1953 versus 2004, obviously. But you, you do see you do see changes and they are worth um, looking at and they are interesting to juxtapose. Um, and not just because juxtaposition is in the title of this week's episode, but because um, juxtaposition, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks where we go to a certain country, is uh, the source of created meaning. And like I was saying before, the film is very symbolic and it uses a lot of foreshadowing and things that you don't think of as foreshadowing as good foreshadowing should be until the uh, event actually happens. Um, so for example, like dropping a, a plant off of a windowsill, it doesn't, it seems kind of, uh, innocent until, you know, you understand the larger context of the film itself. And there, there are some things like even in the composition, there's a composition of, uh, two characters sitting in the grass with a suitcase beneath them and an airplane just flies directly overhead of them, which if you don't know the context is just, Oh, it's kind of a nice, nicely put together shot, but it's actually incredibly meaningful or another shot of an airplane that is leaving. And it actually hits like the exact corner of the frame. Yeah. And stuff like the repeated shot shots of the shoes, um, take on more meaning as, as the film goes on. And like we were saying with Tokyo story, um, uh, of course, the stakes seem higher throughout Nobody Knows, but there's nothing in particular exciting happening throughout the early parts of the film. Um, there's just a lot of really sad things happening throughout the early parts of the film. But as you get invested in these characters' lives, and as you see added things happen to them, um, you, you become engrossed in the film, and you care about the film, and you exit reality, our reality, um, if you believe in reality um, oh, and you, you enter the world of the film <laughs> and, and, and you exist there. And that's always a strong um, sign of a really good film is if you've ever watched a movie and realized and suddenly realized that a lot of time has passed or you're like, oh, yeah, that, this isn't the real world. Or if you come up, if you pause it and you go away, go away from a second and you're really upset about whatever's happening in the film. That's a that's a good sign of a film, and if you want a film that'll leave you feeling really upset, nobody knows is a good one, or um, any of these three, or any of these three really, um, but especially with nobody knows because like we've been talk about it, talking about with all of this um, foreshadowing that we've been mentioning and we've been walking on eggshells with it because obviously we don't want to spoil the film because the end is kind of shocking, um, but going back to like the Cornetto trilogy week with Edgar Wright, where we say, go back and rewatch these movies and rewatch them and rewatch them. Cause the foreshadowing is so interesting. I feel like nobody knows could be a really great candidate for that. Um, if you ever felt like crying, 
Like, <laughs> like if you, you're like, I really need a good cry right now. I'll, I'll watch Nobody Knows again. Um, <laughs> but, but I don't, I don't feel the same way about the foreshadowing. I feel like thinking about it after I've watched that movie and not experiencing it again because it was really good and really effective. Um, but sadly, like I said, that effect was making me uh, very sad. So, yeah. Either if you want to be sad or incredibly angry at neglectful parents. Yeah, geez. Oh, it is not easy. There's a lot of to, rage that happens uh, at the beginning of this movie. No, no. You're Inside gonna, of the audience. Yeah, the mom is pretty awful. She's pretty awful. And uh, there's so there's there's a lot of bad movie parents because they're made by filmmakers and um, the vast majority of people don't end up liking their parents too much. I'm willing to bet yeah, on that. But she's not um, evil stepmother bad. She's, she's just, I mean, she's just purely neglectful. I mean, that's her thing. She's so self-absorbed that she doesn't pay attention to the children. And she just jets, maybe literally, and never comes back. Um, yeah. And and especially once you read up on the real actual case that happened. And you're like, wow, some human actually did this actually let this happen to their children like wow it, it, and it's not even within the the realm of um you can you can find a way to make apologies for this parent like no no what she did right. was terrible and self-centered and awful and it's completely okay to hate her because <laughs> you will by the end of the movie or five or minutes the into middle. the movie for the fact five minutes into the movie when she was pulling her kids out of suitcases i was like i am done with this woman like wow yeah there's no amount of like uh trying to reward them and having fun with them kind of makes up for that no no Because she does yeah. she she goes through all the manipulation steps of you know, trying to give them treats and then trying to say that they're the ones that are being selfish and saying that she just she deser deserves to be happy. And you're like, no, you d you deserve to take care of your children, lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but we just need we need to vent about that, I think. Um, and also brace those of you who have yet to watch um, <laughs> this film for it. Uh, but like we said, it is really good. And it is worth a watch if you want to see a different kind of filmmaking than you're used to, because it's not your everyday kind of filmmaking. Um, it definitely and is. And like we, yeah, like we talked about in uh, Italian neorealism, there is a place for these sadder stories. Not everything has to be American. Everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, and the fact that this, like you've been talking about, does come from a real case gives it a lot of meaning and um, makes it an important thing to watch and just be aware that this happens to people in the world. And it kind of like it broadens your awareness of the kind of children who need help because the other thing about the movie is um, Akira won't doesn't want to like tell the authorities or anyone about their situation that their mom left and stuff because then they'll all be sent to uh, some kind of state-sanctioned um, shelter where they'll be broken up and they won't be able to be together. And he's, <laughs> he says, we've done that before and it's just terrible. It's a big mess. And so it you know raises awareness of how bad we are as the people who are outside of that experience at taking care of 
the people who are in that kind of need who are for lack of a better word the victims of people like the mother who were just are so concerned with their own life that they would neglect their children who really need the care yeah yeah and that kind of is the significance of the title of this film because i was wondering that halfway through i was like what what does this title have to do with anything in this film and the point is nobody knows Nobody knows um, that these children are going through this struggle. Nobody knows uh, what really happened in the actual case because everything is so covered up. I mean, literally all the kids in the actual case are referred to as uh, Kid A, Kid B, Kid C, Kid D, and Kid E. They, so, so none of these characters are one-to-one for, to those characters. Um, nobody knows. It all, it all, and it the all film makes mysterious. a special acknowledgement of that. Yeah, as most this as the sad thing is as uh, most bad things that happen to children, nobody knows, and yeah. that's that's yeah. scary, and, and that's one of the most uh, strongly affecting things about this film um, and small filmmaking in general is when it really when it hits home, it really hits home, and um, you don't have to have had to experience like this to uh feel that empathy or sympathy or whatever the correct term for it is um to to feel pain about it or to feel sorry about it um or to feel that it's suddenly real because uh of all the effective filmmaking techniques and rhetoric and all that jazz that we love to talk about all the time um that just makes the experience of watching the film so affecting yeah so that's all just to say that we've kind of built it up as this super depressing film. Like why would anyone want to watch that? But it's still a really important film that it exists and that people see it because it, it changes your outlook in a lot of ways. Um, even if it doesn't leave you with a, with a happy go lucky feeling in your stomach when you leave it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be fair, you know, some people like being sad. Some people like, uh, watching and reading and listening to sad things and i've definitely been in moods before like you know how you might be in a mood for chinese at the time or for like italian or whatever um food i mean not movies although maybe <laughs> movies uh, but like i've definitely been in the mood where like i don't want to watch anything happy right now i just want to watch something sad and well here's another sad movie for that list so yeah so add all three of these to that list Right. Um, all right, but with that, let's go into our overall notes um, and talk about things that we saw in all three of these and maybe tie in our Akira Kurosawa films, which we've been mentioning the Akira Kurosawa films, but if you want to find out which episodes we talked about him in, you can find those in any episode with Samurai in the title. We have three Samurai in Sombreros episodes and one Samurai in Space episode where we compare Akira Kurosawa to uh, several Western films. Samurai in space. 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 If you want to hear Alex do that again, find that episode. <laughs> I do do that a lot. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. If you guys only knew how many stupid things I said that Jonathan has to cut out of this podcast every week. So many stupid things. We would things. have another podcast. We would have another podcast. The blooperlings. The blue. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Are there? Is there anything else we could ling? We. Oh, I'm sure we'll find something. Oh, there's so many things. There's so many things. Um, 
Although I do want to mention a couple of the things that I, or one thing that I noticed, we already talked a lot about the cultural comparisons of the experience of family uh, through the lens of Japan in these three films. But I do want to mention uh, food because there's a lot of food in these three films, especially in like Tokyo Story and um, uh, Nobody Knows. There's a lot of food. Well, there wasn't, there wasn't enough food and nobody knows at some point. That's true. There, that's true. But there's a lot of eating, even though it's not like great food. Right. But I think that's a key uh, factor, a key thing in the experience of family. And it's actually something that I found really relatable because that's something that you grow up doing with your family all the time is eating. Um, and Breaking that's what bread, you see. if you will. Breaking bread, yeah, and that's something that you see in Tokyo stories that they're like always eating, and uh, same thing in Nobody Knows. Even though uh, the thing in Nobody Knows is it's kind of a parody on that situation, um, a sick parody, uh, but um, a parody right, where one of the kids the situation. at some point is eating ramen noodles dry because their water has been shut off, and so he's just like crunching down on these noodles, and you're like. That's so sad. Yeah, yeah. You see the the family, uh, the family tentpole, the family uh, centerpiece of breaking bread together slowly deteriorate deteriorate over the course of the film. Um, but you also see it in Tokyo Story too. Yeah, and you know, as you're describing that, it actually kind of brings me back to the uh, Bunuel episode and the fact that we found so many dinner parties in all of those movies and it's kind of he was parodying that because in the bourgeois society that he uh, was living in kind of that breaking bread together had a very artificial feel and people put on a lot of airs and stuff like that in order to be accepted in society and that was one of the events that you have to be on your best behavior for and all that kind of stuff but here in these films it's a much more intimate experience and it's a much more um, it's where you kind of open up to your friends. It's where in Tokyo Story we see um, the parents are finding old friends that they've had and reminiscing over food and drink and um, you know connecting with their children and stuff like that. And then in Nobody Knows, it's where the children, either with their mom or eventually just with themselves, are connecting and talking about their day and that kind of thing. And so it brings a different light to it that does, as we've been talking about with the big and small films, it keeps it very small and personal and intimate because it is, again, an experience that everybody can relate to. Right, right. And they are these really uh, intimate, relatable meals that you have, um, whether it's a cup of ramen noodles or just like a family dinner versus like um, a grand feast or something of the sort that you'd see in a big film. So again, as we've kind of been talking about across all of these films, is how how kind of restrained and intentional all of the filmmaking is. Like it's very minimal and intentional what is put in the frame. Even in Nobody Knows where the camera is a little bit more free-flowing and uh, all over the place, it's still showing us very specific items at a time like we were talking about with the cutaways where it'll show close up on a face or a hand or a shoe or you know just little things like that to kind of imply the um the gravity of the situation 
Uh, and kind of one way that I would describe all of the films this week and kind of, I guess, Japanese film in general, based on my experience with it, is very poetic uh, in the way that they think about and tell their stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, especially in the, the older films from the Golden Age, the 50s and the 60s, with Howard Carey and Tokyo's story, um, everything is so precise, like you were saying, uh, the lighting, the camera movement, especially the blocking. I was always really impressed um, with the blocking in Kurosawa and how well he lines everyone up exactly in the frame where he wants them to be. Right. Um, and not just not just to create a pretty shot, but to often to create meaning with the, the geometry between where you have uh, characters positioned. And you see that, too, in Harakiri and Tokyo's story. I mean, Harakiri has, um, like, a super crazy uh, sword fight towards the end of it that is, takes place all over all over the main setting. Um, and it is perfectly choreographed, and everybody yeah. gets their marks, and everything is super well-lit and beautiful and exactly what you would expect from an uber-precise 1950s Japanese film. And again, I think that's kind of... A reflection of uh, like Japanese art in general. I mean, Japan is where we get the haiku, which is such a like perhaps the most precise form of poetry that you can think of. Um, and especially like you're talking about, those classical directors have that mindset and that um, that kind of just cultural approach to art flows into their films, and it's really beautiful and. Um, fairly unique to that culture and is why it's so striking to us Americans who <laughs> kind of like we talked about with India last week, like bigger is better. And, and it is a, a really big contrast to India last week because everything was so flamboyant and big and exciting that you see the flip side of what cinema can be here this week, because even though it's smaller, it's still just as um, striking and poignant yeah, yeah, and and that there is um, no neither one is particularly better than the other, but there is a time and place for each. And these these family centric, very intimate um, stories um, feel like they're on on the small scale are um, feel like they're better suited to this small filmmaking, this small restrained filmmaking. Whereas something like Bahubali, which I, I do want to be honest does have families a big part of it at the center but um it's less about it's less of a family tale more of an epic tale i mean right or, and the and fact also, that the family like, is a royal family yeah yeah like they're, they're the royal family of an epic mythical um indian kingdom in uh something something ce like uh it's it's different than just being like an average uh middle class family in uh tokyo Japan. Yeah, but yeah, like you were saying, and like we've been saying throughout uh, the last couple of weeks is that, you know, there is a place in film art for all different kinds of experiences. And the more that you know about the more like, you know, whatever mood you were in, like you were saying with with your different tastes at different times, um, you know where to go to get a specific type of art to experience at whatever whatever time you're at and 
but you can't limit yourself to American film. And that's what I'm learning. We're only like halfway through the world tour, but that's the biggest thing that I've taken away is that nobody should only be consuming American film because you're missing out on so much. Yeah, yeah, especially if you are um, a cinephile or are even kind of rem remotely curious in making some of your own content, um, your own art one day, um, it's important to see how more people than uh, just those around you produce things because there's so many there's so many good things out there um, and so many different techniques and so many different styles that you wouldn't experience otherwise and comparing all of those juxtaposing all of those um, is is a great way to learn about them and learn when to use this technique can you learn when to use that technique yeah and and beyond you know artistic research purposes if you're just a person who consumes film um then you know branching out from the films made in your native culture is also really important because it just broadens your horizons and your understandings of um how other people live in different parts of the world in a really safe and comfortable way that you just have to um experience it and experience how they tell stories and it's um, you know, it's just been a really enlightening experience for me so far, and I'm definitely planning to kind of shift my uh, my ratio of American to foreign films just for my general uh, viewing experience from now on. Right, right. And it is a lot cheaper than a plane ticket. Yeah, no kidding. And there's so much international film on just even on Netflix or uh, as we plugged last a uh, couple weeks ago with Filmstruck. Harakiri and Tokyo Story are both on Filmstruck. If you want to go check those out, oh yeah, there's, a there's lot a, of such an easy way to just on Filmstruck. Right, there's it's so easy to get access to those films. You go to your local library, um, even uh, local movie theaters will will play some of the bigger films. Like Bahubali Two was playing in some of the American theaters for a limited time. So just find out when that's happening and go check it out. Yep, yep. You'll definitely you'll you'll appreciate uh, different kinds of film more, and you might come away with it with a bigger appreciation for the films you were already watching too. Okay, Jonathan. So, what are we going to talk about next week? Next week, we are traveling back, uh, coming a little bit closer to home. Uh, our neighbors in our home state of Texas, uh, in Mexico, and we'll be watching the films Macario from nineteen sixty. Amores Peros from 2000 and Pan's Labyrinth uh, from 2006, the famous uh, Guillermo del Toro epic. Uh, well, it's not really an epic. It's it's a it's a myth, but it's very interesting and we will have lots to talk about uh, in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, it'll certainly be an interesting look at a film market that I don't think comes to a lot of um, people's minds right away. Um, but has definitely generated a lot of really interesting and really high quality content that we want to take a look at. Yeah, and not to mention that Mexico has also produced uh, several directors who have since moved to the United States and have become very big in the Hollywood market, uh, including Alfonso Cuaron, who directed Gravity and Children of Men and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and also Alejandro Inarritu, who directed The Revenant and Birdman, and also Amores Peros, which is on the list for next week. So 
Uh, lots to talk about. Fairly overlooked, I feel like, but uh, very influential. Yeah, yeah. We're helping to um, experience a film market that we have not had a lot of experience with, a lot like um, we did with India, but also to um, bring to front a source of really great films and really great art um, to anybody else out there who is looking for new sources of great film and great art that they didn't know about already or didn't have um, experience with. And it should be um, a worthwhile time like all of our weeks on the world tour have been. Um, it should be a lot of fun to watch and a lot of fun to talk about. And I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Well, that's about all the time we have in Japan for now. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.wordpress.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right. I will see you in Mexico. Sorry, I'll be right back. Okay. You good? Yeah, I accidentally put my foot in a cockroach trap. Um, (laughs) Jeez. You really put your foot in it this time.